Once upon a time in the fair land of France, there lived a very powerful lord, the owner of estates, farms, and a great splendid castle. And his name was Bluebeard. This wasn't his real name. It was a nickname due to the fact that he had a long, shaggy black beard with hints of blue in it. He was very handsome and charming, but if truth be told, there was something about him that made you feel uneasy. Bluebeard often went away to war, and when he did, he left his wife in charge of the castle. He had had lots of wives, all young, pretty, and noble. But as bad luck would have it, one after the other, they all had died. And so the noble lord was forever getting married again, and again, and again. Someone would ask every now and again, what did his seven wives die of? Bluebeard would often reply, one died of smallpox, one of a hidden sickness, another of a high fever, another of a terrible infection. Calling himself unlucky, but his wives unluckier, he had them all buried in the graveyard behind his castle. Nobody found anything strange about that, nor did the sweet and beautiful young girl that Bluebeard took his wife think of it strange either. She went to the castle accompanied by her sister Anna, who remarked how lucky she was for marrying the lord, such as Bluebeard. The bride responded with Bluebeard being very nice and when you're as close to him as she gets, that his beard doesn't look as blue as folks say. The two sisters giggled delightedly. A month or so later, Bluebeard had the carriage brought around and said to his wife that he must leave for a few weeks. But to keep cheerful during that time, to invite whoever she'd like and to look after the castle. He then handed his bride a bunch of keys saying she'll need these. They are the keys to the safe, the armory, and the library, and the master key that opens all the room doors. He then pointed to a key that was much smaller than the others, saying it opens the little room at the end of the great ground floor corridor. Take your friends wherever you want, Open any door you like, but not this one. Is that quite clear? Repeated Bluebeard. Not this one. Nobody at all is allowed to enter that little room. And if you ever did go into it, I would go into such a terrible rage that it's better that you don't. She then reassured Bluebeard I should take the keys that she'll do as he says. After giving her a hug, Bluebeard got into his carriage, whipped up the horses, and off he went. The days went by and the young girl invited her friends to the castle and showed them around all the rooms except the one at the end of the corridor. She thought about it so much that she ended up bursting with curiosity. Why couldn't she see the room? Why was it forbidden? Until one day, her curiosity got the best of her. So in the middle of the night, she quietly made her way down to the great ground floor corridor, unlocked the heavy door, and proceeded to walk inside.
of all ghastly horrors inside, hanging on the walls were the bodies of Bluebeard's seven wives. He had strangled them, hung them on hooks, and killed them with his own bare hands. Terror-stricken, the girl ran out of the room, but the bunch of keys slipped from her grasp. She picked them up without a glance and hurried to her own room, her heart thumping wildly in her chest. She was living in a castle of the dead. The girl summoned up her courage and she noticed that one of the keys, the very key to the little room, was stained with blood. She knew she had to wipe it clean before Bluebeard came home, but try as she would, the blood stain wouldn't wash away. She washed, scrubbed, and rinsed. All in vain, for the key was still blood red. That very evening, Bluebeard came home. Bluebeard didn't ask his wife for the keys that same evening, but he remarked that she looked a little upset and asked if anything nasty had happened. Hesitantly, she replied no. That night, the bride didn't sleep a wink. The next day, Bluebeard asked for his keys and his wife hurriedly handed them over. Bluebeard noticed the key to the forbidden room was missing and asked his bride why the key was missing. Shaking, she responded with she must have left it in the room and proceeded to go fetch it. But when Bluebeard's wife put the key into his hand, Bluebeard turned white and in a deep, hoarse voice demanded why the key was stained with blood. She didn't know. He retorted that she knew very well why and that she went into the little room after he explicitly told her to never step into that room. He then shouted, Whoa, well, you'll go back again. This time for good, along with the other ladies in there. You must die. The young bride pleaded for her life, but Bluebeard was not hearing any of it. You must die, he repeated. Just then, there was a knock at the door, and Anna, Bluebeard's wife's sister, entered the castle. Good morning, she said, and commented to her sister that she seemed rather pale. Bluebeard replied that they were both quite well. His wife then whispered in his ear to please, please give her ten minutes to live. Bluebeard replied, No more than ten minutes. The girl ran to her sister Anna, who had gone up to one of the towers, and asked if she sees their brothers coming, as they promised they would come and visit her today. But Anna replied that she doesn't see anyone, and if there's something wrong, she looks agitated. The young bride pleaded to her sister to check again to see if she sees anyone on the horizon. Only one or two peasants, replied Anna. Just then, the voice of Bluebeard boomed up to them. Wife, your time is up. Come here, now. I'm coming, she replied, and proceeded to ask his sister to look closely out the window one more time. Come down at once, or I'll come up. Trembling like a leaf, his wife went downstairs. Bluebeard was clutching a big knife, and he grabbed his bride by the hair. Anna then called out from the tower that very moment, saying she can see two horsemen coming. 
Bluebeard made a horrible face and replied, They too will die. His wife knelt to implore to spare her life, that she would never tell a soul what she saw. Yes, you would never say a word. For eternity, snarled Bluebeard, raising his knife. The poor girl screamed for Bluebeard to have pity on her, but he fiercely replied that she must die. So as he was about to bring the knife down on the girl's delicate neck, two young men burst into the room, a dragon and a musketeer. They were his wife's brothers. Drawing their swords, they leapt towards Bluebeard, who tried to flee up some stairs but was caught and then killed. And that is the end of the sad story. Bluebeard's poor wives were given a Christian burial. The castle was completely renovated and the young widow, sometime later, remarried a good and honest young man who helped her to forget the terrible adventure. And that young lady completely lost all her sense of curiosity. and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> and then I'm talking <laughs> no but wait wait I have something for him boom you get shot down now you just fucking me aren't you <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids the weird history and eerie tales podcast concentrate on the news it's what we do wow <laughs> FYI there's nothing wrong and that is the legend of Bluebeard the tale of a sadistic lord inspired by the French sadomasochistic lord himself, Gil de Rey, who is going to be our subject for the next couple of episodes. But before we get into all of that, welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Eretails Podcast. I am your host, Moses Orion. With me to my left is my brother, Josh. Hey. And then sitting directly in front of me is Archie. Love this layout, bro. So, if you follow us on Instagram, Weird History E-Retails Pod, you have noticed from our stories that we are remodeling the studio and today is our first day recording with our new layout. But today's episode is the start of a multi-part series on the life and exploits of Gail DeRay, a French lord whose life reads like an amazing horror story. Once seen as a great hope for France during the Hundred Years' War, we will be covering the rise and fall of this royal prince who went from fighting next to real-life saints and helping France defeat the English to summoning the devil and doing his evil beating to finally being executed for the rape and murder of hundreds and hundreds of children. So without any further ado, here's part one of our Gilda Ray series. Let's fucking rage! Rage, rage, fucking rage! <laughs> So, Gil de Rey was born sometime between September and October 1404 to Guy Sankin de Montmorency Laval and Mary de Cron in the family castle of Chateau sur Loire. His baptism was attended by members of the nobility from surrounding regions, each one bearing gifts. So, given the baby's ancestral connection to some of the most illustrious houses in medieval France, this sign of respect, you know, is kind of expected. Nevertheless, Gales was born in a chamber known as the Dark Tower, and he came to believe that he was born under the curse of a black planet. 
and this black planet, as you guys, as we're gonna go along in these in the series, is gonna come up. And we'll talk about it as we go along. Right? Yeah. So his father, Guy the Second, Knight and Lord of Bliason and Camille was descended from the Montmorencies, who were the first barons of France. So Gilderay, he was basically like the one percent of the one percent. Uh, Mary de Cron, his mother, was a direct descendant of King Robert II, which is kind of ironic, too, because King Robert II, he was the one who restored the Roman custom of burning heretics, which ironically legitimized the execution imposed on Gil de Rey and, you know, his associates like 400 years later. So Mary de Cron, she was also related to some of the, the most important and wealthiest houses Ensuring that Gales and his younger brother Rene stood to inherit an immense wealth. Like, the only way I could describe it is if imagine if Oprah and Mark Zuckerberg had a baby, right? So that's one. And then uh, Jeff Bezos and um, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Um, Bill Gates. Uh, Jeff Bezos and um, Bill Gates, they had a baby. And then those two babies, they fucked, and they had a baby. That is that was Gilda Ray and his younger brother Rene. He was walking around with big dick energy, huh? Dude, big so. Dick energy. But like most unions during the 13th century, their marriage had been politically motivated, and you're gonna see throughout this whole series that there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of back dealings and backstabbing and deals being made it's like game of thrones with a lot more brother and sister fucking and a lot less dragons that's fucking, that's fucking trash bro as a matter of fact even the way bef- once gilderay you know was getting conceived and stuff just the trail to get to that point for that fucker to get to become born was a nightmare and this is how it went. In 1371, the last Baron of Rye, uh, Shabaud V. By the way, I'm going to freaking destroy a bunch of these names. Died without an heir, ultimately passing the ancient house to his sister, Jean, who was also known as Jean Lesage. She too was childless and in casting about for his successor, decided on her younger cousin, Guy II, the, the Mon- Montmorency Laval. The Montmorency Laval. Which is Gil's father. There you go. There was a problem, however. Guy's grandmother, known as Crazy Jean, which is the same Jean that I just talked about, has been disinherited after marrying for love, and the decree blocked the rights of the descendants of the Barony of Rye. It's fucking new. With her customary shrewdness, Jean Lesage got around the obstacle by offering to adopt her cousin and legally including him to her family line. So, basically what's going on is the heir of DeRay had no chip, had no child, so he had no heir. So he's like, I'm going to pass my title down to his sister. To his sister. So the, they, the title was going to get passed down to her. She had no heir. So she's like, I'm going to just pass it down to my cousin, which is Guy the Second. Mm-hmm. She was going to pass it down to him. And that's where. Yeah. And in order to make that happen, oh, she yeah. had to adopt him. Yeah. Because she, she's the cousin. So she had to be literally in his bloodline. So she ended up finding a loophole and said, fuck it. I'm just going to adopt my cousin. 
And now, there was a catch, however. Guy II had to renounce the title and arms of Laval and assume those of the House of Rye. So basically just trading family names, right? Yeah, he had to trade yeah, he had to trade his own family name for the Duray name. Mm-hmm. For Duray name. So on September twenty three of fourteen oh one, he agreed and the adoption was formalized. The family harmony, however, was short lived because for some reason Jane and the new heir soon had an irreparable argument. And there's rumors about what this argument was. One of the arguments was You ain't my last fry. One of them is stupid like that. You're kidding me. One of them is stupid like that. She's like, look, you're going to be my son. Yeah. You're my cousin. You're going to be my son. Right. And one of the things was, you're legally my son, so I could treat you like my son. And Guy the Second was like, yeah, 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 come on. Come on. Like, come on. <laughs> like, don't don't son me in front of people. She's like, well, yeah. I can because you're my son. Yeah. She's like, if I tell you to go to your room, you got to go to your room. He's like, dude, come on. Like, you know, we're just doing this shit for legality. Like, you got to play the part. We're the same age, yeah. bitch. Bruh. And then, for whatever the argument was, she canceled the arrangement and chose successor Catherine de Majacou, de Majacou, who was also a distant cousin. Madame de Majacou was a widow with a son, Jean de Crone, who now stood to become Baron of Rye. Under the new arrangement, so sorry to keep no no worries. Inter- no, handles, handles, handles. We're gonna hear about this piece of shit. Jean de Cron. Jean de Cron is the reason, the sole reason, I believe, Gil de Ray turned like out that. to be the way he turned out to be. We're gonna find out a little later. And a lot of the and a lot of and a lot of why he was a piece of shit has to do with this. Furious, Guy initiated a lawsuit before the Parliament of Paris. The bitter legal battle went on for years, and both sides finally reached a compromise. If Guy married Jean de Cron's daughter, Marie, the barony of Rye, would be his. He agreed, and the wedding was duly celebrated on February 5th of 1404. Two years after Gil was born, Jean de la Sage died, and Guy II officially became the baron. Of so, there's, there's a, a, not a million, but there's a lot of ways to pronounce the last name. Rye, Doray, Doray. I'm just used to saying Doray because that's how Danny Filth says it in the album. In the Creator of Filth album, he says Gil Doray. That's the only reason I pronounce it the way he does it. I've seen documentaries where people say Gail's Doray or Jillis Doray. There's so yeah. many different, it's a weird Jillis Doray. I say Gil Doray just because Danny like Field says it, and that's the way I first heard it. Jill's so, Doray. yeah, so that's how what so that's how his fam, that, that's how Baron, that's how Gil Doray got his surname, Doray. It was just a huge a bunch of dealings going back and forth between cousins. Like, this cousin, I'm gonna adopt this cousin. Nope, you're being a piece of shit. I'm gonna adopt my other cousin, mm-hmm. and then so. John DeCron, he became bitter. He was going to become the Baron of Rye. Yeah. He thought he was going to become Baron of Rye. The, the Baron of Duray. Oh, yeah. Uh, Baron of Rye. And then shit ended up going back kind of sideways for him. He's like, fuck it. If I'm not going to get the title, at least marry my daughter. Right. If you're going to marry my daughter, then you get to be. You're going to be the next in line. He right. just didn't think it was going to be so soon. Because after that, Jean ended up dying. And then Guy ended up becoming... Baron Duray. Yeah. So growing up, 
Gills was a child of above average intelligence. He spoke Latin fluently and he loved to read. A lot. And for someone who ended up becoming the monster that he was, and for someone who was exposed as a sadist in his 20s, he had a pretty tame childhood compared to some of these famous monsters. Well, we have four pieces of shit for you all. So the acronym I'm going to have for these guys are POS, which stands for piece of shit. So POS number one, we have Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. known as a night stalker. He was a brutal criminal who would break into the homes of the victims at night, attacking them and then killing them. Born in, an, in El Paso, Texas to Mexican-American parents, he had a troubled childhood and spent a lot of time with his sadistic older cousin in which he would brag about sexually assaulting women during his time as a soldier in the Vietnam War. His father was also evil, subjecting Ramirez and his six siblings to vicious beating. Now, before you keep on going, we were talking, there was a, a teacher meeting that I was in, and we were talking about this guy specifically. Richard Ramirez? Because, Richard Ramirez. Because it actually happened over there where I work. Around mm. that area, uh-huh. it was a time when, uh, I think it was like around Halloween or something. And he was going out, and then they knew who it was. And a bunch of guys like, hey, it's a freaking Night Stalker. And then a bunch of people from the community grabbed bats and started beating the shit out of him. What the Until fuck, police dude? got there. What? And it happened in that area, dude. Really? Yeah. Like, the teachers were like, yeah, I remember when that happened. He was, he was, uh, he was also called the highway, I think it was called the highway killer. The highway killer because the highway killer because he would just kill someone and he would lose everybody because he would just jump in the highway. Yeah. And, oh shit. And look at all the fucking freeways that are around here. If you get on yeah. the seven ten, in five minutes you could be in Gardena, you could be in Long Beach, you could be in fucking Alhambra. Like you're done. Yeah. You're gone. Ghost. Yeah. You're gone. And, and Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And this was a, yeah your ghost Patrick. And this is the eighties. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of precincts they weren't talking to each other. Yeah. The Linwood Police Department is not going to talk to the Compton Police Department and vice versa. So if you go from one city to the other, it's like going from one planet to the next. You're yeah. done. And you got to win. So, yeah, Richard yeah. Ramirez. That's how you got caught, bro. Piece of shit. That's the POS number one. Uh, POS number two, we have Andre Chikatilo, a Soviet serial killer uh, with the title known as the Butcher of Rostiv. Chikatilo was convicted of murdering 53 people, Ooh. although he claimed his actual victim count was much higher. He would not only brutally assault his victims, but after killing them, he would mutilate the bodies as well, earning him the name The Butcher. In 1994, he was executed by gunshot in Novocherkask, Russia, at the age of 57. Chikatilo's childhood was one of the worst. He was born during the famine caused by Joseph Stalin in Ukraine. His family and those in in the surrounding area went with very little food. He later claimed he had never eaten bread until the age of 12 years old. His family would eat grass and leaves to survive, but most hauntingly, his older brother was kidnapped at four years old and cannibalized by starving neighbors, something in which Chikatilo would never forget for his entire life. That is fucked up. Oh, bro. Crazy. And we're also going to be talking about that weird famine in a later episode. We're going to talk about a specific cannibal island that Ooh. happened during that Soviet ice age. Hey. 
POS number three, we have Mary Bell. Mary Bell was a British serial killer born in Glasgow, Scotland, where she shared a one-room house with her mother. As a young girl, Mary would witness her mother, who worked as a prostitute that specialized in sadomasochistic acts, engage in the acts with her clients, often in the same room her daughter slept. Her mother had made attempts to kill Mary at a young age, but instead she realized there was extra money to be made if she prostituted her daughter. Damn. The horrific abuse she was subjected to at a young age turned Mary Bell into serial killer when she was just the age of 11. She strangled, mutilated, and killed two young boys, four-year-old Martin Brown and three-year-old Brian Howe in 1968. Judge Justice Cusack said she was a very grave, very grave risk to other children and sentenced to juvenile prison. Since her release, she has been granted a new identity and is believed to be living in the northeast of England with a family of her own. And last but not least, we have the POS number four, Ed Gein. Ed Gein's childhood and relationship with his mother was influenced for Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 movie, Psycho. Hey. When, hey. 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 When the detectives visited his home following a string of missing women cases, they found one of the most disturbing cream side. Cream. <laughs> One of the most disturbing creams. Creamy. Creamy. It's a creamy scene. <laughs> so when the detectives visited his home following a string of missing woman cases, they found one of the most disturbing disturbing crime scenes they had ever come across at his home. They were furnishings made from bodies of his victims, including chair covers, belts, what? and bowls of their skulls. There was a belt that was made out of human nipples. I Human nipples. Human nipples. A whole belt? A whole belt. As a young boy, Gein was only allowed to leave the family farm to attend school. Fellow pupils claimed that he would sit laughing alone to himself. Outside of school, his mother would preach to him about the evil world outside, the evil of drinking and the belief that all women were prostitutes and connected to the devil. Gein was punished if he ever tried to make friends. What? Following the death of his mother, following the death of his mother, fucking list, bro. <laughs> following the death of his mother, he was truly alone in the world and began boarding up the windows on all the rooms his mother used. Investigators who searched the house found that while the rest of the rooms were in terrible conditions, it was only the rooms that his mother used which were kept in perfect condition. Because he loved his mom. He loved his mom. He loved his mama. He was scared. He was scared. Of, deathly scared of his mother. And that's the thing about Ed. He never raped. He never did. He was he just like he just like killing. He just like killing. And um, he wasn't even killing. He was he was grave robbing. I think he I think he maybe I think he did kill like a few people. Uh-huh. But that was just because they found out what he was doing. Uh, but he went out. He but he would go out and start grave robbing fresh graves and just taking them out, peeling them, and just making nipple belts. Soldier Ray was spoiled and entitled, you know, like most children of nobility during that era. But there was no evidence of abnormal behavior, you know, outside of his self-isolation. But that was more, that was mainly due to, you know, both of his parents dying and him being under the care of his grandfather, Jean de Cran. And he committed no known cruelties, you know, during his campaign against the English during the revival of the Hundred Year War, outside of him killing the enemy. It's as if 
you know, Gil's attacks of sadism just descended on him, you know, like a quick epileptic fit. But on September 28th, 1415, Guy II died in a gory hunting accident. When Gilles was 11, a year after his brother Rene was born, their father was out hunting in the woods near their castle when Guy was charged by a wild boar and was gored. The attack led to his slow, excruciating death. Gilles admired his father and this accident in 1415 took a very positive influence out of his life. Gilles imagined that the black planet hovered over him and that it inflicted more vengeance that year when his mother also died. Like most Europeans in the Middle Ages, he assumed the cosmic dance of the stars and planets influenced his life. This is the era where astrology and horoscope was more prevalent than ever. There were, you know, like doctors, you know, they even carried special calendars containing star charts, allowing them to check the position of stars, you know, before making a diagnosis. They had like special almanacs that explained how star signs ruled over each, you know, part of the body. So with both of his parents gone, Gills had no one to confide in, no one to dispel his fears, and he became preoccupied with death like many children who lose their parents. He suffered from his loss in complete morbid silence and turned into a brooding, solitary child inhabiting the lonely, spacious halls within his castle. He also saw fate as a cruel jokester because here he is with a large fortress and you know beautiful land covered with vineyards and rolling hills and villages with an unlimited amount of wealth for him to buy whatever he wanted, whatever he desired. And the only thing he desired was the only thing money couldn't buy, his parents. He was taught nothing of moral obligations and personal accountability that properly came with such an inheritance. In his last will and testament, which he authorized in his deathbed, Gail's father designated a cousin as the guardian of both Gail's and Rene. Guy knew all too well what type of man his father-in-law, Jean de Cron, was, and he did not want to entrust his children to him. Nevertheless, after Guy's death, Jean de Cron successfully contested the will and became guardian of 11-year-old Gilles and 1-year-old Rene. The firstborn son inherited the bulk of the parents' estate to the exclusion of any younger siblings. And, you know, nobles believed that if they divided their lands amongst their sons, stronger neighbors would attempt to take over the smaller estates. Thus, all of his parents' great wealth went to Gilles, and Jean wanted to control Gilles' huge fortune and was bent on possessing it. Two honorable clergies, Gil's tutors agreed with Guy's assessment of Cran, and when Gil's father was alive, they made sure the young Baron de Ray was well-schooled in morals, ethics, religion, arithmetic, and humanities. But all of that stopped, as they abruptly left after Jean de Cran placed Gil and Rene in his own care. They considered him to be no better than a thug. So, uh, Jean de Cron, at this point, he was getting up there in age, and he was, you know, pretty bitter. Because if you listen closely to Archie a little while ago, you knew he was close as hell to having inherited the barony himself, had Gil's father not agreed to have married his own daughter in that deal they made. So during Gil's trials, Gil would say that his grandfather was, you know, he was overly indulgent, letting him and his younger brother get away with outrageous behavior, free of any boundaries. Gills became accustomed to getting whatever the fuck he wanted, whenever he fucking wanted. Leading to impatience with delayed gratification 
and a lack of regard for others. Uh, before you move on to the next part, there's one small detail that Moses mentioned there. And that is the trials. And you were mentioning it before that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, we didn't know because until the trials happened. Yeah, right? yeah. Like all of this information came out during the trials. Because remember, up until that point, Gil DeRay, he was a war hero. Remember, France was war-torn. Everyone, you know, everything's going to shit. And at, up until that point, Gil DeRay was like one of the soul beacons of light. He was the one who was capturing fortresses. He was the one who was doing all of these things for France and for the people. They idolized him. He was, for the lack of, you know, like... The way Catholics and Christians look at the Pope, that's probably how, you know, the French looked at him during, you know, during this era. And his trial was, you know, it was a huge thing because here we here we have our war hero. Here we have our soul beacon of hope for he was the beacon of hope for so long. And here he is on trial with accusations of rape and murder. Of you know hey, children, it's, it's kind of confusing because sometimes we're saying, "Oh, Gilderay is a piece of shit." No, but he, Gilderay, he will, he ended up being a piece of shit. But before he became a piece of shit, he was a hero, which yeah. is not confusing because we're looking at it. We're talking about it in the scope of his life. He had to me, his life had fucking everything you could have imagined when it comes to a story arc. This rich kid who had everything he wanted, grandf everything he wanted. He was a loving kid. Parents died. Piece of shit grandfather came, started steering him to the wrong direction, and he became a war hero. I'm not going to spoil the rest of it. That's for the other episodes. True, true. But because he was such a war hero, he was almost a saint when he was alive. People looked at him the way Catholics and Christians look at the Pope. He was that guy. So when he was caught doing the things he was doing, they had to give him a trial in France mm -hmm. in front of the people who idolized him. So the 60-year-old Jean de Caron, he relied on banditry to get whatever he wanted. And although he possessed, you know, substantial noble credentials, dude, he was a knight. He, you know, he was a knight. For the Duke of Brittany. You know, and he was already extremely rich. But wealth. That was what Jean de Cron worshipped. A noted French writer and historian once said about Jean. If you would put away all the titles. Credentials. And fancy clothes away. You would think of Jean as a lowly purse snatcher. He was just a piece of shit. For the sake of being a piece of shit. So, you know, Jean de, Jean de Cron, he showed little respect for anything except for his own greed. Jean de Cron, he was such a greedy piece of shit. He once authorized an armed attack on the Queen of Sicily while she enjoyed a ride on her horse. John ordered his goons to relieve the jewelry of the Queen of Sicily while she was out, you know, on a nice ride out. Her escorts had their baggage and horses stolen and they were forced to walk many miles back to her castle. So as you can imagine, Jean de Caron, he probably didn't set the best of examples for Gil. But the greatest lesson 
Jean imparted to Gilles as heir to a vast empire was that he remained above the laws of France. And this is something that would stick with Gilles for the rest of his life. Aside from him asserting that fact to Gilles, he pretty much left Gilles to run free doing whatever the fuck he wanted to whoever the fuck he wanted with very little oversight, but with only one exception. He insisted that Gil receive extensive military training as a knight. And like many bereaved children, DeRay showed abnormal anger and defiance, especially with a caretaker like De Crone. Perhaps he felt a need to control his environment since he lived with an amoral grandfather. The mature Gills played upon the sympathy of the judges during his public confession to an, uh, he confessed to the court of men <laughs> and he admitted that he amused himself in any way he saw fit as a child and blamed his offense on his grandfather's lack of discipline. He told the court he sought his grandfather's attention and the most dramatic way to be noticed, he thought, was to inflict pain on servants retainers and other juveniles he did all the evil which he was capable quote i placed my hope intent and effort into this illicit and shameful things and he created their improper acts for the purpose of bringing about suffering end quote he laughed at these individuals twisted in pain the crone never heeded gills uh improprieties never reprimanded him never showed him any love of all the abuses a child might suffer a profound sense of abandonment and rejection causes the most harm later on once in a while john the crone indulged gills who hated uh to be bored to entertain him uh john will assemble a mock court for him made up of 12 and 13 year old boys the mission of these young boys was to serve gill and obey his commands little was uh sacred to him and he liked to dominate, liked to punish these boys, and he pushed them beyond the limits of tolerance for him. The French historian Joseph Ruel, yeah, Ruel, alluded to his acts being almost quote unquote homosexual in nature. Uh, Roger de de Brickville, a cousin from the Normandy region of France, came to Gill's castle as a page after his family was financially ruined during the Hundred Years' War. Later, Roger became a fugitive accused of assisting Gill in his brutal adult crimes. In an attempt to clear his name, Roger wrote a letter seeking a pardon from the King of France. In the letter, he accused de Ray of bullying him even as far back as they were children. Gill frequently tied him up with uh, narrow leather straps, bit him ferociously, and sodomized him. Roger said he was petrified of de Ray because of his cruel, vicious nature and fascination of unhealthy pursuits. So with John, the only time he paid any serious attention to Gills was during you know, his aforementioned insistence that DeRay train to become a skilled knight. He watched Gills spend hours learning the subtleties of sword fighting, jousting, and hand-to-hand combat. While the martial games of young lords you know, during that era, they were always pretty dangerous, DeRay always mismatched his opponent. He enjoyed being the most savage and the most victorious. He reveled in attracting attention and would take any challenge. On one occasion, fighting with swords and daggers, Gil stuck an opponent with such force that he killed the boy right then and there. 
Drake, you know, he had not intended to kill the boy. He really didn't. But he showed a little remorse after doing so. But in a surprising contrast to the behavior of his childhood, Gil DeRay was also an enthusiastic young scholar and, you know, he loved learning. At his father's request, he read and recited Latin and Greek by the time he was seven. As he got older, he showed an interest in science, art, music, theater, literature, and gemology, which is the science of dealing with gemstone materials like emeralds and rubies. And he also developed a fine taste for expensive furniture and fabrics. DeRay being not only brought up learning the art of waging war, but also appreciating the literature of the elite at the time. He mastered both in his youth. As an adult, he excelled in fighting and proved to be a remarkable intellectual who enjoyed commissioning musical compositions, collecting art, assembling an impressive library, and staging grandiose theatrical events. His grandfather, on the, on the other hand, did not give a single fuck about any of these things. He thought only about getting richer, and he married Giloff at the age of 13 to a four-year-old Norman orphan. What? What the fuck? The marriage would have made the house of Decron and the Duray the most powerful in all of France. But her guardian wanted her for his own seven-year-old son. Why to keep it in the family? Also Norman. So what did Jean Decron do? He went to her financially strapped grandfather, offering to pay his debts if he approved, you know, the forthcoming union. The furious guardian called up on the Parliament of Paris to settle the dispute. The contract of marriage was declared null and void since both children needed to be at least 14 years of age to marry. The young girl entered a convent soon after. Oh, look at that. Her parents were like, fuck this. But Jean was not done yet, oh no. Ten months later, not even a year, ten months later, Jean de Cron, he found a better match for Gilles. She was the niece of John V, the Duke of Brittany, and aware of Gilles' wealth, the Duke hardly encouraged the union. A gigantic gathering nobility took place in a majestic Romanesque uh, cathedral. The Duke, he wore an ermine-trimmed purple vest and ancient Breton mantle for the occasion, but the intended marriage did not occur. Why? Because piece of shit Jean de Cron discovered an even richer heiress with an even bigger dowry. Catherine de Thours, her lands would greatly augment the de Cron and the de Ray's estates, as her immense properties encompassed a splendid and very important castle in the de Ray lore, the Chateau of Tifouge. She was also Gil's fourth cousin. Bruh. And the Roman Catholic Church, they forbade a union between such close kin. Restriction placed by the Catholic Church. In the Middle Ages, the church had to put regulations on who you can marry and who you can fuck when it came to relatives. Let me repeat that. The Catholic Church put strict regulations on which family member you can fuck. And in France, these regulations included up to fourth cousins, adopted relatives, and spiritual relatives being godfathers and godmothers. But these restrictions did not deter Jean de Cron. When Catherine's father died unexpectedly from a high fever, Jean, Gilles, and a small group of armed men, they surrounded poor Catherine when she was just out on a customary ride. They kidnapped her and they took her away to a chapel where a monk was paid off to marry the two 16-year-olds. Jean, you know, he rushed to kidnap Catherine because he did not want to give any rivals a chance to claim her hand. And 18 months later, after the Catholic Church received a very handsome contribution from Jean, the local bishops followed instructions given from Rome to marry the fourth cousins in holy matrimony. So Gil de Ray and his grandfather Jean de Cron, you know, they had felt no remorse carrying off and kidnapping Catherine and forcing her to, you know, to marry Gil's. They didn't give a fuck, so much so that during the 18th month period from when they captured her and she was officially married, 
They even kidnapped her mother, and they threatened to kill her if she proceeded to try and stop them. But she told them to go fuck themselves, and she would often send troops and chancellors over to Gil's castle to, to demand her daughter's freedom. And every time they would beat the shit out of these messengers, throwing them into frozen lakes every time they stopped by, eventually having Catherine's mother to give up hope on ever getting back her daughter. So here they are, kidnapping real-life princesses and showing no remorse, but when their duke was kidnapped that same year, they were outraged. But they came to a rescue without a moment's hesitation. Dacron, not one to pass up an opportunity like this, recognized that if they freed him, the duke would reward them with money and land, which he would have if things were not as complicated as they were. So the duke, Jean V, he did not fulfill his promise to the French to raise troops to fight against the English in the Hundred Years' War, you know, which was a series of battles between the French and the English for the French throne taking place over the course of a hundred years, mostly on French soil. But there were reasons for this. His mother, Jeanne de Navarre, she remarried Henry IV, who was the king of England, thus giving the duke very personal ties to that country. So he's literally and figuratively stuck between a rock and a hard place. John IV, he also thought the heir to the throne was weak and not fit to govern France. The Dauphin, which you know, which is the heir, he was sarcastically referred to as the King of Bourges. His place of residence was taken over and without a proper army, no financial backing. He just said fuck it and escaped to the town of Bourges. So the Dauphin, aware of the Duke's double dealings as well as the little smart-ass insults he had been making, thought of a plot to trap Jean and teach him a lesson about loyalty. So he invited the Duke to a banquet at a luxurious castle and when the Duke arrived, he was chained and thrown into a fucking dungeon where he almost, you know, starved to death. And in the attempt to liberate the Duke of Brittany, Gil de Ray, he organized several companies of men-at-arms, which he commanded. With being one of the youngest captains in the field, Gil's courage and ability as a, as a strategist stood out. All his studying and training was finally paying off, and in spades. He loved the challenge, he loves being, being stimulated by the art of battle, by the bloodshed. He also showed the first glimpse of his murderous impulses here. DeRay ordered his 9 foot long wrought iron cannons, some weighing over 500 pounds, to fire stone balls incessantly against the castle. Cannon after cannon, the stone balls were turned to parts of the stronghold relentlessly. Fires broke out in the fortification with columns of crackling heat rising toward the sky. A lot of soldiers that were set ablaze and had their clothes melted off. They ran from the terrace to try and escape their pain. Their surviving defenders, tired but basically unscathed, they desperately tried to fling the ladders back with forked poles and dropped an avalanche of rocks along with boiling hot water from the openings atop of the castle walls. Archers sent waves and waves of arrows into the crowd of attacking men. Gil's troops, they dodged these the best they could, but they kept on charging. Many men had stone scratch onto their helmets, wounding them, and many died from the arrows pouring down. With his insane disregard for danger, Gil's had the rest of his forces to follow him in a mad but direct assault. Dodging arrows and rocks, they surrounded the castle walls, and they scaled the walls in different areas to divide the enemy's defense. So as the walls were mounted, DeRay ordered a battering ram called the Tortoise to break down the castle gates. And leaving nothing to chance, 
DeRay also brought in a wood and siege tower. His soldiers climbed up protected ladders inside this tower to a drawbridge at the top. So he had his own makeshift towers that he would bring, line up up against the walls. So it's a tower that they built themselves. So this, his soldiers would go climb in up to the tower. They're being protected so from the arrows or everything. <coughs> so once they got to the top of the tower, they would make a bridge to connect to the wall of the castle. And that's how they got in. It's yeah. basically like a portable tower there, dude. Port Freaking a ladder with shields. Is what it at Gil's com- at Gil's command, the drawbridge was dropped to the castle wall, so more of his men could swarm in. When Gil's forces flooded the castle, their excited cries were drowned out by the enemy's shrieks of pain. Some were gruesomely cut to pieces. Some were smacked so hard in the mouth, their teeth came out the back of their heads as they crashed into maces, axes, and swords. Both sides now covered with blood and sweat bashed out each other's brains, intestines, muscles, eyes, noses, kneecaps. It was a fucking brutal mess. Dead and maimed men lay everywhere. Despite the fight put up by the defenders, DeRay's unrelenting assaults resulted in a demoralizing defeat to the enemy. With bells clanging throughout the vibrant Brenton city, the young DeRay accompanied the liberated Duke John V into Nantes. The masses hailing DeRay for his triumphant deeds. After rescuing the captured Duke, DeRay and his army traveled to Nantes and helped retake strongholds that were once lost during the Hundred Year War. So during this parade, he waved many times in acknowledgement, looking like a fucking warrior, attired in dazzling armor a breastplate detailed in bronze eagles, and wearing a sword with a silver pommel. He reveled in the admiration of the crowd. The Duke granted him numerous properties confiscated from the enemy, Sean V, also gave Gil and his grandfather a large annuity derived from the rents of some of these conquered enemies. Being a soldier had won great honors for Gil's ancestors, and with his brief military experience, DeRay found being a soldier so fucking exhilarating. So enticing that he decided he too would become a professional warrior following, the, following in the footsteps of that noble tradition. Gil's exploits in Brittany were the prelude to his brave defense of France as he aspired to outglory his ancestors. Fighting provided the fire Gil's needed in life. He savored the fury, he loved the killing, and accepted the challenge. All these appetites he expressed he expressed more horribly after he left the military, when he turned into a psychopath and fed those hungers with the murder of hundreds and hundreds of children. How old was Gilderay at this point? Uh, maybe nineteen twenty, if that. He was—he's still young. Remember, he—he he had just gotten married a year before at sixteen. Yeah. He waited at like eighteen months or a year and a half. He was like seventeen and a half. Maybe like 18, 19, 20, 21 at the oldest. So here he yeah, is. He gave no fucks. He didn't. Because he found it exciting. He was he was exhilarated. It's, it's a freaking challenge. I'll take it. So by the late 1420s, the English, along with their allies, continued to conquer all but central and south, southeastern France. Thanks to the mili- military efforts of DeRay. Everywhere you looked. 
destruction and carnage shaped the landscape. The lives of many were ruined as they were tortured and terrorized by the English, using a chevauché, which is a writing method of medieval warfare for weakening the enemy primarily by burning and pillaging enemy territory in order to reduce the productivity of a region as opposed to a siege warfare. So what the English would do is they were riding horses. Now you've seen these in many movies where they just ride on horses and with fire they just start firing. Just start pillaging the place. Pillaging, that's what they did. That's what the English did. This cavalry of a few hundred men, they discombobulated rural society. They rode throughout the countryside, wasting enemy territory. Farmlands and crops were destroyed, peasants murdered, animals slaughtered, bridges smashed, smashed, villages scorched, smoke blackened entire regions. In some places, the English impaled the French on stakes, a la Vladimir Paler, and castrated the males as they dangled there. They smashed in the heads of toddlers, roasted people alive, and forced their families to eat their flesh. So like I mentioned a little while ago, the English were not fucking around. This wasn't a we're taking over your land type of war. This was a we are killing every single one of you until we get what we want. We're cleansing the land. The English pillaged and raped their way through rural France, and none, and I mean none, were more vicious than the Godins or the Goddams. Goddamn! <laughs> as the French called them. The Goddams. Or known as the Godins. The Godins? The Godins, there's Godins, Godins. The, the Godins, the Godins, but they're God, but they're but they're known as the Goddamn because Goddamn, <laughs> Goddamn. So the Goddams continued to rape, flog, maim, and murder citizens. They threw their residents off the roofs of their homes, dumping their mangled bodies into the open sewers and ditches when they could not be extorted for valuables. One English company made a living capturing castles then selling them back to their original owners. Another group of goddams controlled 40 strongholds. They acquired vast amounts of booty, including a great number of valuable horses. <laughs> These raids had political significance as well as they called into question the French ability to defend their land and people. Normandy, one of the first provinces occupied by the goddams, suffered the most. Resentment grew among peasants, laborers, monks, merchants, and among those disgruntled was the father of Roger, the cousin that was brought in to live with Gills when they were boys. That's the cousin that Gilderay was. Sodomite. He was butt-fucking. Naturally, a resistance movement rose against the English, but they were no match for the goddams. Anyone caught male or female was buried alive in the heaps of manure or executed. The goddams piled the dead on top of each other, leaving the carcasses to rot in public squares. In this hundred-year war, the wasted lands overall poverty and constant fear of death dispersed thousands from their homes and throughout France and reduced them 
and reduced them to living scarecrows. Death dispersed thousands from their homes and throughout France and reduced them to living, to living scarecrows. Misery and despair painted everyone's face. Many were sick, tormented by rickets. It got so bad that even thieves became apprehensive of the emaciated, ragtag souls wandering over the land in search of food. Vast clouds of circling black crows signaled their every move. These noisy flocks with their piercing calls feasted well when they spotted the dead. So did the wolves. So even the, the thieves were like, man, this is too fucked up. We can't steal <laughs> yeah, from you, huh? Well, it's not that they were too fucked. It's not that it was too fucked up. They were just like, yo, these guys are too sick. I don't want to risk getting some sort of disease from these people. Because remember, they have no food. Yeah. They're, everyone's, there's bodies lying everywhere. Bodies, so the, on bodies on bodies on bodies. The diseases that must be going around, the smell. And these people, like, it's rural. This is rural France. This yeah. isn't. This is like farms, yeah. like, you know what I mean. So it's like they weren't off; they weren't that well off to begin with, and, and then they're just, just horrible. So at this point during the war, France is war torn and in dire need of a hero. Hedges have taken over many towns; houses were overgrown with weeds, and the only inhabitants for large areas around France were wild boar. The same boar that killed Gilderay's father. Shit was looking rough for France. Five residents lived in Limoges, a French city of roughly 20,000 people. Half of the population of Lyon fled beyond France's borders. Shit got so bad that delegates from the University of Paris proclaimed that if things didn't end or get better, the French would have no choice but to leave France. So as the goddams made their way into the Dauphin lands, this is where Duray took part in brutal fights. Here is where he receives the stimulation and thrills that he craved because these battles were savage. So Gills, along with other young warriors, assaulted the stronghold taken by the English. DeRay fought next to these knights that were knowledgeable, skillful scouts and skirmishers. With these brothers at arms, DeRay was able to retake three renowned fortresses that helped turn the tide of the Hundred Years' War. These three fortresses were Rainfort, Lude, and Malicorn. So, right now, we're going to indulge ourselves and start with the first of the three, Rainfort. So DeRay's forces appeared on the pathway leading up to the Rainfort Castle, luring the goddams out of the fort. To the English, the goddams, they seemed like a small troop that they could easily be destroyed. They, to the French, I mean to the English, the French looked like a bunch of just ain't shit bitches. But as soon as the encounter began, DeRay pulled the old switcheroo and the rest of DeRay's men emerged. Roaring with fury. When I was reading, it says, literally, roaring with fury. His armor, his 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 army, they were roaring as they were storming the castle. Rage. So as they were roaring with fury, the raised men hacked, tore, sliced, 
and skewered the English with their bladed halberds and spiked spontoons. Bladed halberds are basically, imagine an axe that's double bladed instead of having it on oh, one side, yeah. but it's a long one. It's a long, just be, imagine a long axe that yeah. it's actually hold with two hands, it's long, but it's just double, double bladed. Yeah. yeah. That's the um, halberd. That's the bladed halberd. And the spiked spontoon is basically just a large spear. A huge spear with a huge spike at the end. This was a bloody battle thanks to these weapons used by the French. Because remember, these weapons were meant to be used in close combat. They were so near to each other that they could smell one another's rancid breath. Look at the whites of each other's eyes. There were injured French and English soldiers gibbering in terror and pain, crawling away from the battle, dragging themselves through the blood-soaked earth and over the dead bodies of the fallen. Even though the English had fortified the stronghold, they were severely overwhelmed and it had a lot to do with DeRay's prep and planning. This is where DeRay starts showing his genius for battle. A week before the battle took place, DeRay sent in a few of his men to scope the area out and had them dig tunnels underneath three of the corners of the castle walls. So he had his men go, go to the castle and they dug three tunnels in between three corners of the castle walls. They then reinforced them with wood. So when the battle started, these men surfaced and set the wood on fire which caused the tunnels to collapse, severely damaging the heavy corner walls. Overwhelmed. So this happened while, so while DeRay was storming and killing everybody, all of a sudden, three-fourths of the walls kind of collapsed onto itself. And the goddamns had no protection anymore. They had no fort. So overwhelmed, the goddamns pulled back into the stronghold and realized they were in deeper trouble than they had hoped. Two-thirds of their infantry was out in the field, bloated and dead, and the walls to the castle were caving in and on fire, providing little to almost no protection. The goddams were fucked, but if that wasn't bad enough, the goddams faced the predicament of being starved to death. Even if they did manage to hold off the French, they wouldn't last more than a few days. The supplies were almost out, and that's only because of their cockiness, of their cockiness and refusal to stock up on preserves in case anything like this would happen. So instead of them stocking up, putting shit into their fortress like most people would, they were cocky. They didn't think anything was going to happen. Like, we're only going to be here for like a few minutes. Well, not even that. They just didn't even think they were going to need to be holed up in the castle. Like, why are we going to need supplies for? We're just going to go out and get whatever the fuck we want. They didn't expect the Ray or anybody to come in and kick them in the teeth. So with only a well inside the stronghold as their only source of water, and this well was running dry, and their food supply almost gone, they screamed from the they screamed from the tower walls to the French that if they halted their attack, the goddamns would vacate the castle the next day. The reason they did this is because the goddamns weren't stupid. They expect they were expecting more of their troops to come the next day to rain for it. So they're like, maybe we tricked them and saying, give us, just buy us some time and tomorrow we'll leave. 
maybe in that time our reinforcements will come. They'll come from the back and we'll be able to attack the French. The backup never came. The English ended up handing over some of their men and hostages to back the pledge. Morning came and the French, led by Duray, let the English leave Rainfort, taking the injured with them. Next, Guild de Ray achieved an astonishing personal victory at the Battle of Lude. And so in the Battle of Lude, he first directed the battle from a ridge near the castle just after sunrise. He raised his sword in the air and signaled the battle to begin. A relentless assault from the cannons, two massive catapults stationed 1,000 feet away sent stones, burning wood, and the corpses of livestock over the walls of fortification. They hit the defenders with a devastating accuracy, often smashing heads, scattering body parts, and setting sections of the castle on fire. Gills had carefully planned his attack. Diverse bombardments came from all directions, setting severed limbs flying and stunning the tense survivors. Many splattered with their colleagues' blood. Some of the dead, looking as though they were about to participate in retreat, had fallen on top of each other with their eyes and mouths still wide open. They're like, Kelly, and they're like about to say, what? Yeah, they were, dude. Like, they, dude, they were just getting <laughs> demolished. They didn't know what, they were trying to run away, and boom, they were just dying. Before they even had a chance to run away, they're just dead. Yeah. Dead. The raised bombardment now afforded the ground troops the opportunity to invade the fortification. Along with his men, he began to charge on foot through the choking clouds of smoke. With fists pumped in the air, their fierce battle roars uh, reverberating through the castle above them. They bolted toward the, the stronghold, ready to fight easily securing scaling ladders to the weakened six-towered fortification. With shields and new helmets paid by the DeRay and forged to withstand the rocks and boiling water down upon them, his troops met with scant opposition as they clambered on the walls. See, so Gil learned from when he rescued the Duke. Remember, his men were being pummeled with rocks that were being climbed up. There, many of them were dying. They were getting thrown hot water on them. So Gil, not one to, t- to, to make the same mistake over and over again, he learned from this. He's like, I'm going to make better helmets. I'm going to make them stronger helmets. So the this boiling... Is a, this boiling, is a, the, the 2.0 right here. Yeah. It's the patch notes, bro. It's the patch notes. Fix the patches. Fix the glitches. So Gills entered the castle first. He immediately encountered the, the English commander Blackburn, a crusty colossus. The two battled, lunging, smithing, loudly roared, and vowed to fight to the death. DeRay obliged. His men at arms reported that DeRay raised his weapon above his head and brought it down with such force that he split Blackburn in half. Supposedly, this legit happened. That they were this dude. They were saying, uh, like the way they described him. Yeah, he was fighting the mountain from Game of Thrones. This is how big this black this Blackburn was. He was fighting. Gilderay was fighting the mountain, and he was winning because he was stealthier. Yeah, and remember when he was younger, he excelled at smithing and doing all this shit. So he was nimble on his feet, and this Blackburn, he was. He just depended on his... He's a big dude. Bruce Force. So as DeRay tired yeah. him out, the guy's like, I'm not giving up. DeRay's like, cool. I'm not giving I'm not tired. The dude was heaving. And, yeah. And, and one blow, this fucking... He fatalityed him. 
just ran up and just sliced him from head to crotch. Boom. They killed him. Yeah. Damn. And the 21 Savage song came out. <laughs> wow. Following DeRay's example, his troops began to lop off the heads and appendages of the day's enemies without mercy. They battered, tore, ripped, and slaughtered their foe. The frightened English left standing gave up their arms after seeing the leader and comrade butchered. Quivering wrecks, shocked by what they cured, some w even wet themselves of their nervousness. It was simply an English bloodbath. Dude, DeRay went in there and made the goddamns go goddamn. So news of the surrender of Rainfort and the decimation of Lude reached the goddamns holding Malicorn. Believing that they were next any minute now, the English placed a shit ton of dry grass in a large circle almost 4,000 feet away from the stronghold, spreading oil over it to make it burn easily. When the English saw 500 Frenchmen marching toward the fortification, the English set the grass on fire with a flaming arrow, trying to burn and kill as many of the invaders as they could. DeRay ordered his men to stop short of the grass, as he was aware of this tactic, commencing the battle. For Malicorn. Damn. That's an awesome name for a battle. Malicorn. The Battle of Malicorn. Wow. Yeah. DeRay ordered 100 of his archers to shoot into Malicorn. Missiles flying over them. The rest of his troops pounded the castle with cannonballs that cracked the walls, bastions, and towers. The English cringed under this assault from the sky, which delivered a loud, violent death to many stationed there. In addition, as soon as the heat from the burgundy grass had died down and the heavy choking dust settled, French foot soldiers were free to surround the castle. They began an attack with support from strong artillery. DeRay and his comrades led the assault. Torrents of arrows, darts, and javelins rained down from the battlements onto the French, rushing the parapets. The English madly pitched spiked hammers called gags at the French. As a last resort, the frantic goddams hurled sand at the enemy, <laughs> hoping it would get into their armor and make their soldiers itch. Dude, at this point, the goddams, <laughs> they tried everything. They threw, they, dude, they built a fucking farm of fire. Killed the ray, like, nope, I know what this is. Stop. The fire went away. The guy was like, fuck. <laughs> These dudes went through. They're going. They're Kill the race just like, the chick is up. Just like, yeah, they're like, like the fire. Oh, just go around. So they went around. The guy was like, oh, fuck. We should have thought of that. So they're, they're doing everything. Dude, they, they're throwing sand, hoping like, hopefully they it's bad enough that they don't, they can't climb up and kill me. French are like, Yahweh. Yahweh. What passes, Nico? Outnumbering the 400 men stationed in the English garrison, the French now crawled over the castle walls. Vicious brawls ensued, using the sharp side of their heavy shields along with their swords. The French, bent on revenge for the atrocities the English, specifically the goddamn, committed in their country, attacked with fury. They screamed out insults as they hit, maimed, and killed many of the exhausted goddams. They clubbed out their eyes, ears, testicles, and brains. 
The English fought not only with swords, but with bell hooks, a curved tip blade using for cutting branches, hatchets, mallets, stones, and anything they could get their hands on. Like sand. Okay. The yeah. French wanted to kill the English so bad, they were using the tips of their shields, because you know how the shields yeah. are tipped? Yeah. Just stabbing the English. They just... Dude, like you, dude, you, you wrecked my house. You wrecked France. I'm gonna fuck you up. And they're talking shit back and forth. You're stupid. No, you're stupid. No, you're stupid. It's like an Xbox Live chat in real life. <laughs> a still warm, severed foot, half a body, a decapitated head could all be seen flying through the air during the battle. English resistance dwindled as a toll of their dead and wounded grew. The tired captain in charge of the English, covered in blood and sweat, surrendered to prevent further casualties. His surviving troop remained silent, filled with shame at their total rout. So this was one of the bloodiest battles of the three. And the goddamn, they couldn't really prepare because there's no Wi-Fi, there's no internet, so you're not going to be able to send an email. Hey, they're hey, coming for you. Hey, we got wrecked. Watch out. <laughs> GG. Like, th- there's none of that. Like, you know, Good no- luck. Have fun. <laughs> G-L-H-F. <laughs> There's none of that. So the goddamns. I remember, these guys were cocky as shit. And, I mean, they kind of had a right to. It was just a few hundred men. They just ran through France, fucking France up. They're like, there's nobody here that's going to mess with us. And here's this fucking French serial killer. Well, and beep serial killer comes in and is like, no, no, no. Cracks his knuckles and he fucks them hard, dude. He was like, thumbs up, let's do this, dude, bro. He did. He did. He was, remember, you, you've read, he was the first one in the yeah. castle. He yeah. was like, dude, we're, we're doing this. We're doing this the right way. And he was wrecking them. And he went from battle to battle to battle, each one. How, how amazing would it be being led by someone this. That charismatic. That had a lot charismatic. Yeah, because that that will influence your. I mean, but remember at the same time he's still twenty. Yeah, even better. Well, I can't let this young motherfucker out. He's all play me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. But dude, it's and he was and he was good. You could tell he was good. He was just like, dude, he was prepared. He knew the tactics. He really like all the throwing arrows. Stop. There must be fire around here. Boom. All right. Cool. Yeah, it was right. Let's just wait it out. Goddamn. So after the Battle of Manicorn, in keeping with their medieval traditions, all of the goddams, they were released after they paid a hefty fee. So imagine, these motherfuckers come into your house, come into your state, ruin it, rape, kill, murder everybody. They take home in few in your country. You fuck them up and you're like, yeah, you can leave. You just got to pay me. That was tradition back then. And the goddamns ended up paying. And at that time, handing over a nice ransom to the conquering army was common during the war. The losers, they gained their freedom and could regroup and fight another day. While the winner took over the territory, purchasing additional supplies and weapons with the losers' money. So it was kind of a win-win, I guess, which it shouldn't be. If you lose, you shouldn't win. If I beat you, I don't want you winning. Like, like no, no, no. I wanted to be a hundred percent my my game. You free. So, here's where we first see Deray's unrelenting will for violence. French mercenaries fighting for the English were captured at Malicorn and were taken prisoner. They were French, 
fighting for the English. And they couldn't buy their way out. Double crossing. Unlike the English, these Frenchmen could not buy their freedom. Many of Gil's companions wanted to spare these men, hoping to extract money and information. But Duray insisted they be put to death. The executions proceeded and Gil showed no pity. As he watched these mercenaries hang, he said with an icy nod of his head, you can die for France, but not abandoning. And he took him to the gallows. Damn. So oh, no. So DeRay's reputation for his military know-how, bravery, and ferocity really took off after these three French victories. His victories became beacons of light in the dark times as the English kept on extending their reach into France. But despite these few successes of DeRay and his comrades, the English still claimed most of war-torn France. The French attributed the current horrors of the Hundred Years' War to the Dolphins' inability to beat back the goddams. The war as well as heavy taxation made the Dolphins' governments extremely unpopular. His father going crazy and leaving the throne to Henry V didn't help matters either. The reason the Dolphin, the dude who was quote-unquote called the King of Bourget, his father, who was the king at the time, went crazy. And he left the throne and became homeless. He himself went crazy and left the throne. And people said, yeah, we, and there was saying, there were accounts were like, yeah, we would see him covered in his own shit, just walking through the city, just screaming obscenities. He just went crazy. So naturally, his son had to go, it had to go to his son. But his son so wasn't fit for he it. Wasn't prepared, right? He wasn't Yeah, he wasn't fit for it. But despite all this, the French held a deep and universal sentiment. The king is always appointed by God. Which is why rumors began to spread about a virgin savior of France who was coming to the Dauphin's aid. A peasant girl named Joan of Arc. She heard the voices of Saints Catherine, Margaret, and Michael. Always speaking to her from over her right shoulder and accompanied by a great light, they urged her to rescue France and fight along Gilles de Ray. And that is where we'll stop part one of our Gilles de Ray series. God damn. They got their ass whooped, bro. Yep. They got decimated. And it was just one dude, Gilles de Ray. And next episode, you're going to find out how Gil DeRay fought next to Joan of Arc and how her death was kind of the nail in the coffin that made him into the, the monster. monster that he ended up becoming. No new friends. <laughs> Fuck. Do you guys have anything else to add before we end this episode? God damn. God damn. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it's kind of information heavy but it's again i hope it's i hope it's not as boring i hope it's not boring it's not boring to me i mean there might there's a lot of game of thronish bullshit thrown in the background but outside of that like it's it's an amazing story and when i mean it's an amazing story we're gonna have this this story includes devils and demons and gold 
alchemist confusing him, trying to steal from him. Black magic, Satan. And that's all before the child rape and murder. So if you guys have nothing else to add, please add us on Instagram. Weird History. Eerie Tales Pod. If you guys enjoyed this episode or enjoy our show, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Well, you guys already, if you listen to it, you already subscribed. Yeah. But please rate and review us. But to add into that one, I think that should also be super important. Share us. Show your friends. Show your family. Show people who are interested in the weird in the area. Yeah, it's, it's, try to spread the show around. See who, who, who else listens to it. Who else might be interested? Show it to 10 people. Maybe out of those 10, maybe one will listen. Well, that's the one new listener we didn't have. Like your homie? Yep. Shout out to uh, Adrian, one of my buddies uh, recently got into. Brand new listener, bro. Brand new listener. Uh, barely got into podcast listening. Uh, I told him a long time ago about our podcast. He was all right, cool. Now he, now he has time. And uh, he's listening to our podcast. And he, uh, he enjoys it. He enjoys it a lot. So. Nice. That that shows a lot. So thank you, Adrian, for listening. Um, same with Raul. Uh, he sent us a text. Well, he sent me a text last night, saying, "Hey, thanks for the shout out on the the Atlantis episode. You mentioned a a, a, a close friend who's a diehard Smallville fan, and I'm assuming that was me. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was you. Yeah, that, so. that, that seems like that, that seems like Raul <laughs> Superman. Yeah, Clark That's Kent true. looking ass. But but yeah, and also thanks to Carmen, who's who's one of our listeners. Yep. She she loves our roundtable episodes, and she sends us a message saying, "I know you broke bitches don't have anything to hold <laughs> as a trophy, so I'm gonna send y'all something." So I can't wait for that to come in the mail, so I cannot give it to my brother. And uh, stupid bitch, bro, <laughs> fucking Renee. again. Thank God. you, Carmen. Uh, Damn it. Add us on Instagram, Weird History, Eerie Tells Pods, where we post pictures and videos and stupid stories about us and being in the studio, being cold. Everything, every time we mention a picture, every time we mention a person, go on our Instagram, Weird History, Eerie Tells Pod, to see what the fuck we're talking about. Please rate and review us. It doesn't have to be five stars. It'll be good if it's five stars, but rate and review us. Brutal honesty is what we want. Yeah. Well, not brutal. Just honesty. (laughs) I don't know about brutal, but honesty. So thank you guys. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode because we got three more for you. And Ooh. as always, we are the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. Dun, dun. <laughs>